Every successful business, big or small, depends on the skills and motivation of their workforce. And in today's highly competitive world of business, every employee counts. And that's why we're here to help you find better. Welcome to the Monster Hiring Podcast, featuring expert advice on how to hire, lead, and motivate your workforce and keep yourself motivated. I'm Connie Blazik, editor of the Monster Resource Center. Thank you for tuning in. I invite you to visit our library of resources at hiring.monster.com. When employees have significant gaps in their soft skills, the consequences can be both damaging and difficult for employers. In this podcast, we look at the soft skills gap, an issue that's relevant to workers of all ages. Stay tuned. Perhaps you've noticed the trend. An ever-increasing number of job descriptions include technical skills as part of the job requirements. Yet it's the soft skills that are proving to be a bigger challenge for many employers to find, particularly when hiring younger workers. Skills such as personal responsibility, a positive attitude, people skills, critical thinking, and decision-making, those are the skills that are often lacking. In his new book, Bridging the Soft Skills Gap, How to Teach the Missing Basics to Today's Young Talent, best-selling author Bruce Tulgan cites many a workplace disaster that has stemmed from a lack of soft skills. The book, which is published by Wiley, is based on over 20 years of research and includes 92 step-by-step lesson plans to help employers teach soft skills to employees. Here to talk about the soft skills crisis is author Bruce Tulgan. Welcome, Bruce. Oh, thank you so much for having me on your and podcast. That's great, and congratulations on the book. You, know, you lament that many young workers today lack an awareness of what you call the incredible power of old-fashioned basics. Are we talking here about basic etiquette, or is it well beyond that? You know, sometimes it is basic etiquette. Uh, I had a business leader say to me recently, um, I, yes, I would love it if they had a deep sense of professionalism, if they were great at critical thinking, if they were good at old-fashioned followership. But I just take a please and thank you once in a while. <laughs> but there is a generational change, and the, the issue has grown um, over the last 20 years noticeably, and in particular over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Let's clarify the age groups that we're talking about and and how we reference them, because there's a lot of terms out there now, Gen Y, Gen Z, millennials. Who are we talking about um, specifically when it comes to this soft skills gap? We look at two waves, the first wave of the millennial cohort and the second wave, sort of like the baby boomers. You know, the baby boomers were born 1946 to 1964, but there's really two waves in that great baby boom. And same with the millennials. Uh, So right now, we're studying second-wave millennials, those born 1990 to 2000. Uh, They are the emphasis of of this particular book. And, uh, you know, some people call them Generation Z. Uh, We've been calling the first-wave millennials Generation Y and the second-wave millennials Generation Z. But a lot of folks who are in marketing, uh, they're trying to, to use Generation Z to describe uh, really, whoever's young today, and the younger, the better. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned, as every generation is impacted by national global events, um, this young generation has been heavily impacted by things like 9-11, the 2008 recession, 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, look, uh, generational difference is really the story of where do the natural developmental life stages that everybody goes through, where do they intersect with the accidents of history? Uh, and so everyone lived through 9-11, right? Uh, but if you were 10 years old, uh, it had a different impact on you than if you were 30 or 20, for that matter. And so if you look at the first wave millennials, you know, they were born um, in the 80s, basically. They came of age in the 90s. If you're a first wave millennial, uh, you know, you grew up in the 90s, peace and prosperity. Uh, and the first wave of, of, of the Internet uh, coincided with the first wave of the millennial generation. So it's peace and prosperity. We're going to have magical business models. You can go to work whenever you want, bring your dog. Uh, and then, of course, uh, for those first wave millennials, if they were the class of 2000, they came into the workplace and 9-11 hit, and all of a sudden uh, people's sense of security and safety and certainty uh, was crushed. Now, the second wave millennials, they came of age in the 2000s uh, during an era of profound economic uncertainty and during a time uh, when we, we've been at war, uh, the longest war in American history, for that matter. But, of course, they're also inflected by this rising global youth tide. So all of these huge historical forces are, are a big part of, as you say, the imprint uh, on, on this new generation. But then if you look at the micro level, on a micro level in terms of their day-to-day -day experience, you know, what was for the first wave millennials this self-esteem-based parenting, you know, Generation Xers, we were the great unsupervised generation. Our parents were busy being groovy in the 1970s. They didn't have time for us, right? But, but in the 90s, oh, parents were very focused on building up the self-esteem of their children. By the, the 2000s, uh, it was helicopter parenting on steroids. I sometimes call it investment parenting or cultivation parenting. You know, uh, I had a, one parent told me, you know, I don't want my kid to feel good if he's losing. I want to make sure my kid wins. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that was a big part of uh, the, the shift from the first wave millennial parents to the second wave millennial parenting. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, the other part is um, they grew up with handheld supercomputers attached to them at all times. Mm -hmm. uh, so sometimes I say the second wave millennials are, are like children of the 1930s. If children of the 1930s were raised by helicopter parents on steroids, and if those children had supercomputers attached to them at all times. <laughs> That's a, it's a weird crossing of, of historic sort of moments there to try to imagine that. But yeah, I, I and think my wife's a historian, and she sometimes says, hmm, let me think about that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but but I, I, um, I think at least it gives people the idea. Right. Well, in that way, you're saying parents have, the helicopter parents have invested a lot in these, in their, in their children. And you're sort of advocating or, you know, saying that employers need to do the same with their millennials and Gen Z workers. They need to invest in them to keep them engaged. Well, that's a very powerful insight on your part. And I, I, what I try to say to, to business leaders is, it's your problem. So if you, if you employ them, it's your problem. You have to fix it. Maybe 
it shouldn't be your problem, but you have to fix it. Uh, and uh, I think I like the way you put it, that really what I'm suggesting to them is that they need to make this investment. The problem is that business leaders say two things, right? They say, I shouldn't have to teach young employees to show up on time, to dress appropriately, to say please and thank you, to take notes, uh, to, to respect deadlines, to dot their I's and cross their T's. Uh, I shouldn't have to tell young people uh, how to puzzle through a problem. I shouldn't have to tell them uh, how to be a good team player. These are things their parents should have taught them uh, or, or their, their uh, baseball coach or their uh, piano teacher, someone other than me. Right? They should have learned this in college or university. Mm-hmm. And now that they're here, I shouldn't have to worry about this anyway. And by the way, it's not my, uh, it's not my area of expertise teaching this sort of thing. The other thing business leaders say is, as soon as you invest in these young people, they, they leave. Mm-hmm. So the argument uh, has to be made very tightly based on a business case. And the business case, uh, is that uh, is return on investment? Return on investment. Hmm. Well, let's. Uh, that's. I want to get to that, but let's step back a bit because it really starts, obviously, with your hiring process and identifying a candidate who has some aptitude, if not immediately has the soft skills that you're looking for. And in your book, you talk about a six-step sort of strategy, hiring strategy, to help identify that. It seems like it starts with knowing what the soft skills are that your business needs the most and prioritizing those, put them in your job description and really adhere to them throughout that whole hiring process. That's exactly right. I mean, partly because of the technical skill gap, uh, employers often don't build the soft skill requirements into every step of their human capital management. Uh, And so our advice to our clients is, You've got to know which of these soft skills are the high-priority soft skills for the roles you're filling in your organization. And um, our advice is in your staffing strategy, in your hiring process, attraction, selection, onboarding, up-to-speed training, you've got to emphasize the high-priority soft skills. And then you've got to make it part of your performance management system. If you measure it and you reward it, then people are going to focus on it. And so I see business leaders all the time say, oh, yeah, yeah, we value that. But if they don't measure it and they don't reward it, uh, people take those cues. Um, And that's a big part of uh, our advice, at least if I'm in the boardroom or I'm talking to HR leaders. Uh, When I'm talking to managers, on the front lines. Uh, What I emphasize with managers on the front lines is you've got to be a teaching style manager uh, and you've got to take this on. You've got to make it part of your regular coaching uh, to to teach your uh, new young employees uh, how to conduct themselves properly in the workplace with your vendors, with your partners, uh, and maybe most important with your customers. Mm Mm-hmm. And you say in the interview process, uh, it's best to use a behavioral interview process approach, use behavioral questions to best assess if a candidate has the soft skills you need. 
Uh, that's what we advise, um, and I'm sure, uh, of course, um, the folks at Monster know a lot about behavioral interviewing, um, and it's certainly considered the best practice. But what we emphasize with our clients is if you're going to do behavioral interviewing, uh, then you need to build some good questions around uh, identifying uh, where people fall in terms of these high-priority soft skills. And they're different for different organizations. I mean, you could say, uh, well, customer service, that one's always important. Uh, we recommend drilling down a little more and trying to get more to the core underlying soft skills that make somebody good at something like customer service. Mm-hmm. So you can really, you, you take a targeted approach as an employer will give you better results. I mean, that's, that's always held true, I would say, you know, as part of a hiring process. That's right, uh, and we always focus on return on investment when we're focused uh, on these issues with our clients. Look, um, I don't have the luxury uh, of telling employers you should do this just um, because it'll be good for your young employees. Uh, my advice is always based on what's in the best interest of the business. Mm-hmm. Well, some of the other red flags that you mentioned in trying to assess soft skills during the hiring process seem to harken back to the old-fashioned basics that we, we talked about at the very beginning of our conversation. Things like if the candidate shows up late for the interview, all bets are off. Or if there are typos in their resume and they are going to be doing a communications role, again, that's a sign. So watch for the signs. And those are signs that have been around for a long time. That's exactly right. And the problem is that nowadays, uh, hiring managers are so desperate to hire people with the requisite technical skills. And you look at that and you think, well, kids today, um, you know, they don't learn how to write a proper letter. Kids today, they don't, uh, resumes are kind of old-fashioned. Uh, a lot of these things we write off as being old-fashioned, being on time. I mean, that's old-fashioned. Please and thank you. Who says that anymore? Yeah, and, and so we convince ourselves to overlook red flags. Uh, when we're hiring, especially when we're hiring for a tough-to-fill uh, position that requires technical skills. And my advice to our clients is just think about what every bad hire costs you. Uh, and you're much better off leaving a position unfilled and being rigorous about that selection process. Mm. But I mean, of- the reason you need Monster is to have a sufficiently large applicant pool that you can be selective, right? I mean, that's for starters, I know you offer a world of resources. <laughs> and to target your talent from the get-go so that you're not having to comb through hundreds of resumes, some of which, most of which may not be applicable at all for your selection process. That's Listen, what... I'm a person of faith, and I say thank God for Monster. <laughs> so it's interesting. Um, you talk about one of the strengths of today's younger workers is that many of them are self-directed learners, and that seemed to me to really fold into the premise of the book, which is the many lesson plans that you um, provide for employers to help cultivate soft skills. Was that a correlating factor in, in developing that approach? Yeah, I mean, it was huge. When, when I had a first draft of the book and I ran it by a bunch of our clients and they said, well, I don't want to teach all these young people all this stuff. You know, well, who's going to teach them? Uh, could, you, could you arrange the book? So that uh, the, the, the lesson plans for teaching these soft skills, sure, they could be done in a classroom, but they could also be worked into 
uh, 15 minutes of a weekly team meeting, or even better, I could just give it to the young person as a worksheet. Um, and so that's how the, the, the structure of the book, uh, the reason there are 92 lesson plans, uh, what each of those lesson plans is is sort of a series of uh, uh, exercises, and uh, they're laid out so that they can be used uh, by a manager in one-on-one coaching, they can be used in a team meeting, they could be used in a classroom, or they can be um, given to uh, a person of any age uh, to do some self-directed learning. But beyond that, what I encourage um, managers to do is get young people excited about the self-building aspect of building these soft skills. Get them excited about the value proposition for them. Uh, get them excited about, hey, this will make you valuable anywhere you go, and get them curious about it. Because when they get curious about something, uh, they go out on their own, um, and you never know what they'll find. Uh, they, they go on to the Internet, and they'll find uh, all kinds of learning resources they can use uh, in their own self-directed learning uh, to dig much, much deeper and, and own the process. Mm-hmm. It seems like, you know, you, you talk about curiosity. That is the core ingredient I think you need to find in that candidate. Do they have that enthusiasm for curiosity and self-development? I think you're exactly right. And that's one of these, um, you know, if you're into the character movement, uh, which I, character used to be something that we all wanted to teach our children. Now it's a movement because it's so rare. Um, but curiosity is one of those core character traits uh, that that separate the winners from the losers. But one of the great, exciting things is it turns out you can teach people to be more curious uh, and that it's not just that they're born curious or not. And so my advice is, you know, you've, you've got to make young people aware of these soft skills and maybe their blind spots in relation to them. You got to make them care. And then you, you need to engage their self building and engage their self directed learning. And absolutely that, you know, you've got to spark their curiosity so that they, they, um, they're energized to go do this. And do those efforts end up paying off in terms of retention, better retention rates? I think they do. Um, Look, what they, you always have to worry that the more valuable any person becomes in today's labor market, uh, the more there's a danger they're going to go out into the free market and sell your development investment to the highest bidder. It's very frustrating. We call it the development investment paradox. But when they become better at self-awareness, when they learn more about personal responsibility, when they, when they start to appreciate uh, what it means to have a good attitude and uh, to develop good work habits, to improve their people skills. Um, it's not just that your employees will get better at their job, but they have a much better experience. So they get into an upward spiral, uh, and that does aid retention. Uh, when young people feel like they're getting into a downward spiral, they're not succeeding, they're getting disapproval, they're not getting rewarded. This is uh, one of the ways to turn somebody who might be excited about a job uh, into somebody who's, 
either leaving or leaving without leaving, right, which is even worse. They mm-hmm. leave in their head. They just don't do you the favor of leaving yet. Right. Um, whereas when they're in an upward spiral, when they're learning and growing, uh, the longer they're learning, if they're learning and growing, they're not going anywhere. Right. And it sounds to me like maybe some, you know, some of the older generations will learn a thing or two along the way as well in this process about management, which might have become a little more passive in these last couple of decades where baby boomers, Gen X, you know, we're all cranking away and doing the do and more independently than perhaps these younger workers do now. But this engagement sounds to me like it's going to make for a better workplace in general. Uh, my view is that the days, just like the days of one-size-fits-all career paths are gone, one-size-fits-all uh, rewards, one-size-fits-all schedules, one-size-fits-all doesn't work anymore. And uh, a closely related fact um, is that, that hands-off management doesn't work anymore. Disengaged leadership doesn't work in today's environment. People, uh, there's no time to waste, and uh, everybody's trying to take care of themselves and their families, and uh, leaders need to be highly engaged. They need to provide support and guidance and direction, And, and absolutely, that's not just for the young upstarts, that's for everybody. I had a wonderful opportunity a few weeks back interviewing some of our Monster Summer interns and we featured some of their comments in our podcast called The Millennials in the Workplace. And it was really fascinating. They shared their career aspirations. And many of them voiced this desire to kind of reinvent the workplace as a place where fun and camaraderie can coexist with hard work. Do you see that manifesting out of this whole movement? Well, my view is that uh, it depends on what you mean by fun. Uh, I, I think one of the biggest disservices we can do to young people is to give business leaders the idea that young people are not serious, uh, that they want to be humored. Um, and so if by fun they mean uh, learning valuable skills, working with people whom they respect and appreciate, tackling uh, not just grunt work but interesting challenges, working in an environment that's comfortable uh, and where there is a strong sense of mission and connection to the team, um, that's that's the kind of fun uh, that that we try to help our clients build. Um, not the kind of fun that's a break from work all the time, uh, not a pizza party, uh, but the kind of fun that's the way you get the work done uh, is engaged and engaging. And my view is that the key to that is, is a strong, highly engaged leader who keeps everybody on the same page and everybody focused and moving in the same direction. Bruce, it's been really great to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for including me. Uh, it's an honor to be on your podcast. Author Bruce Tulgan's latest book is Bridging the Soft Skills Gap, How to Teach the Missing Basics to Today's Young Talent, published by Wiley. I invite you to read an excerpt from the book Bridging the Soft Skills Gap. Go to the Monster Resource Center on hiring.monster.com. That's hiring.monster.com and click on the Resource Center tab when you get there. Our podcast page also includes a transcript of our conversation with Bruce Tolgan, as well as a special offer for Monster Podcast listeners who are looking to find better. 